So with the situation in the Ukraine, um, perhaps on all of our minds, certainly on, on mine this week, we are going to look at what does Jesus teach about suffering. We are in a series of, entitled, What Does Jesus Teach? And so for this week, we're going to answer the question, what does Jesus teach about suffering? It's an important topic for us to be able to interface with because it is something that we all have in our network. If, not, if you're not suffering this morning, then certainly someone you know is suffering. So whenever we bump into suffering, sometimes we wonder, we need to know what did Jesus teach because we often think, did I do something wrong? Is God judging me for something? Or is this, is this an attack from Satan? Or, or is this just the results of living in this sin-cursed, broken world? We pray hard and we pray long. We pray to God in the midst of suffering that he would make it stop. And yet he often doesn't. And the suffering often continues. And so then we ask ourselves these difficult questions like, how can God be good if there is still so much suffering? It's a difficult, difficult topic. But Jesus did teach about it. It's a topic that touches all of our lives. It's certainly on TV with the Ukraine and in the news, but even in, in um, uh, I want to say a smaller way, but more of in a pop culture way, we interface with it as well. So I don't know if you all like to watch America's Got Talent. I basically now watch it whenever it's trending on my social media. They'll tell me what the best things to watch are regarding to America's Got Talent. It's this uh, show on television where it's a great talent show and you compete to win the prize for the most talent in America. Well, just this last week, pop culture brought this into our, uh, the forefront as one of the contestants from last year, a young woman from Zanesville, Ohio, whose name is Jane Marcheski. She went by the name Nightbird. And she was a contestant in last year's America's Got Talent, and she passed away last week and went to be with the Lord. She wowed the judges, and she actually wowed all of pop culture last year as she shared some of her story before she sang this beautiful song that she wrote. So let me tell you her story. In 2017, Jane was diagnosed with cancer and given a 50% chance to live. But in 2018, Jane beat that cancer only for it to come back a few months later. And this time when it came back, her husband left her. There she is with just a few percent chance to live. Her body racked with cancer so that when she walks onto the stage of America's Got Talent last year, she had cancer in her liver, in her spine, and in her lungs, and she was told that she has a 2% chance to live. So she walks onto that stage and tells the judges that information and then sings her song entitled, It's Okay. You have, to, you have to Google and watch it when you get home. It's a powerful segment that all of you know, our pop culture walked through it. And then what happened you know, months ago last year when she did it is it went trending right away and she had all the interviews she could ever want interviewed, how can you have that kind of posture? How can you say it's okay? How can you say things like, you can't wait until life isn't hard anymore before you decide to be happy? How can you live with such suffering and be able to say such things as, you are so much more than the bad things that happened to you? She captivated America with her story. And then she went to be with the Lord. But these quotes and this perspective that she modeled for all of those who are tracking it, 
They were filled with wonder because they just, it doesn't make sense in a normal mind that one can be undergoing severe suffering and still maintain a vibrant, robust faith in God and in Jesus Christ, her Savior and Lord. Her suffering is only a sliver of the suffering that exists. We see that it is exponentially greater as you look at a situation that's happening in Ukraine, but honestly, we could zoom in on many other countries in the world and see great suffering as well. Sickness and death, natural disasters, wars, injustice, murder, abuse, poverty, starvation, manipulation and greed and deceit, betrayal. There is actually so much suffering in the world that is often used to say there can be no God if such suffering exists. So people like Richard Dawkins have come to that conclusion. He's a famous atheist. And to quote him, he says, if he looks out, as he looks out at the universe... He says, it has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at the bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. So many people look at the suffering in the world and they say, this is the reason that God can't exist. But, but as many people proclaim that this is the problem of suffering is one of the greatest proofs against Christianity, I actually think that if we look at the teachings of Jesus we might just see the opposite. You see, the problem of suffering doesn't go away if you decide to become an atheist, right? But if you decide to become an atheist, you're just stuck with the problem of great suffering in the world and no hope and no purpose in the midst of it. So as Christians interact with the problem of suffering in the world, we have a sense of faith in the purpose of God and hope in God. And we can see through the teachings of Jesus, as we'll look at now, that suffering is often the very thing that drives us to God. And you might know that too from talking to people in your life. When suffering hits people that don't even believe in God, all of us start, sudden start pointing to God in desperation or anger. And so I want us to see this morning that what Jesus teaches us about suffering is that suffering can be a path towards actually greater faith and greater intimacy with God. To see that, we're going to look at John chapter 11. So in John chapter 11, it's the relatively popular story of when Jesus uh, raises Lazarus from the dead. And so that's the spoiler alert, three seconds too late. Lazarus is going to come back from the dead. And the story is going to end with just triumphant hope that there is nothing in this world that Jesus Christ doesn't have power over, even death. Lazarus was in the grave for four days. And Jesus brings him back to life. So in John chapter 11, uh, verse, starting in verse 1, this is how it begins. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters went to him, or sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And we'll stop there and ask ourselves the question, what is Jesus teaching us about suffering? But to give a little context, Mary and Martha and Lazarus are friends of Jesus you might remember the story where Jesus is teaching and Mary is sitting at his feet listening and Martha's in the kitchen cooking. They are his friends, as the passage tells us. And just for clarity, I know it can be confusing sometimes when Jesus talks. He says, well, this illness does not end in death. 
Well, in a few more verses, Jesus is going to say explicitly, Lazarus has died. What I think is so um, difficult to process is verse 5. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Because of Jesus' love, he stays two days longer. Now, you and I know the end of the story, and we know that he stayed two days longer so he could have Lazarus raised from the dead and display his glory to everyone. But you also have to concede the fact that by him choosing to do that, he chose to extend their suffering for more time. So because Jesus loved them, he extended their suffering, and he made them have to suffer not just through sickness and illness, but even through death. It's not that Jesus doesn't care. He loves them. It's not that Jesus is too busy. He's not. He chooses to stay here. So what I think Jesus is teaching us is sometimes we suffer because he loves us. Sometimes we suffer because he loves us. This is a difficult concept for us, a difficult teaching of Jesus, particularly in contemporary Western Christianity. It's hard for us to process this. We live in a time and a place in which we sort of, by default, equate Christianity with comfort and wealth and success, prosperity and health. That's just not, that's just not what Jesus taught. He didn't teach that Christianity equals health and prosperity. That thinking has invaded our minds, though. That's why when suffering hits us, that's why our go-to response is, oh, this must be God's judgment because God's blessing looks like health and wealth and comfort for me. So this must be his judgment on me. God must be angry with me. Maybe if I believe more, maybe if I trust more, if I pray more, then, then I can get the outcome that I want. So we cry out, God, if you loved me, then you would Come and raise Lazarus, heal Lazarus. If God loved me, he would make the pain stop. If God loved me, he would take this away. If God loved me, he would stop this suffering. Sometimes we fall into the trap of thinking that faith is like this tool we have for like manipulation of God. If I believe, then God will. But faith is believing that God can do anything. And I choose to trust him regardless of what he chooses to do. You look around and you say, well, he healed him, but not her. He healed their child, but he didn't heal my child. Why? I don't know, and neither do you. But what I do know is that Jesus teaches us that sometimes... We suffer because he loves us. Each and every one of us can relate to Mary and Martha. I shared about Nightbird in my opening, and I want to give her a little more opportunity to, to teach us here, because I think she understands the teachings of Jesus far better than I do. She was plagued with cancer, plagued with suffering, left by her husband. She wrote a poem called, God is on the Bathroom Floor. So I'm going to just read her words from her poem, portions of it, and let her be our teacher as she was well acquainted with suffering. 
She writes this, I spent three months propped against the wall. On nights that I could not sleep, I laid in the tub like an insect, staring at my reflection in the shower knob. I vomited until I was hollow. I rolled up under my robe onto the tile. The bathroom floor became my place to hide, where I could scream and be ugly, where I could sob and spit and eventually doze off, happy to be asleep, even with my head on the toilet. I have had cancer three times now, and I have barely passed 30. There are times when I wonder what I must have done to deserve such a story. I fear sometimes that when I die and meet with God that he will say I dis- how I- he will say that I disappointed him or offended him or failed him. Maybe he will say that I just never learned a lesson or that I wasn't grateful enough. But one thing I know for sure is this. He can never say that he did not know me. I have called him a cheat and a liar and I meant it. I have told him I want to die and I meant it. Tears have become the only prayer I know. Prayers roll over my nostrils and drip down my forearms. They fall to the ground as I reach for him. These are the prayers I repeat night and day, sunrise to sunset. Call me bitter if you want to, that's fair. Count me among the angry, the cynical, the offended, the hardened. But count me also among the friends of God, for I have seen him in rare form. I have felt his exhale I have laid in his shadow, squinted to read the message he wrote for me in the grout that says, I'm sad too. If an explanation would help, he would write one for me. I know it. But maybe an explanation would only start an argument between us, and I don't want to argue with God. I want to lay in a hammock with him and trace the veins in his arms. Call me cursed, call me lost, call me scorned. But that's not all. Call me chosen, blessed, sought after. Call me the one who God whispers his secrets to. Even on days when I'm not sick, sometimes I go and lay on the mat in the afternoon light to listen for him. I know it sounds crazy and I can't explain it, but God is in there even now. I have heard it said that some people can't see God because they won't look low enough. And that's true. But if you can't see him look lower, God is on the bathroom floor. The end of the quote. Jesus says in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you. And I think she knew God better than I know God because of her suffering. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, He stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Sometimes we suffer because he loves us. But let's continue with the story. I skip a a brief section just so we can move the narrative along. So in verse 17, Jesus arrives. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection And the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. 
do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. I love the honesty of Martha. She comes running out of the house as she sees Jesus at the gate. And what's the first word out of her mouth is Lord. So right away, the first word out of her mouth, what, she's confessing what? Her, her belief that he is Lord. She's confessing that he is the authority. She's confessing, you have power and I believe in you. Lord, and then she follows it with, you have, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Lord, you're late, but you're still my Lord. You, you didn't come when I wanted you to, but you're still my Lord. It's your fault You have the power. You healed other people and he was your friend and you chose not to come and not to heal him? She is devastated. She is disappointed. Her brother is dead. She is heartbroken. But she is honest and authentic with Jesus. And you should be like Martha. You should come to him in faith Acknowledge his authority as your Lord, and then you ought to tell him how you feel. He can receive it. He wants to hear how you feel. He wants you to pour your heart out to him authentically, just as you are. And she believes. She says, even now, whatever you ask of God, he will give you. So Martha models for us this beautiful intersection that often we live in of like, I believe in you. Why didn't you do what I know you can do, but I I still believe that you can do it? Look how Jesus responds. He says, Lazarus will rise again. And Martha says, I know he'll rise again in the last days. I want him to rise right now. Even now, whatever you ask of God, he will give it to you right now, Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? He says these famous words, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So what is Jesus teaching Martha? What is Jesus teaching you and I? I think he's teaching us that who he is is more important than what he can do. Who he is is more important than what he can do. Martha is saying, I believe in what you can do. This is what I want you to do for me even now. And Jesus is saying, let's just pause for a minute. And do you believe in who I am? Because who I am is actually more important than what I can do. We are a lot like Martha. We want outcomes and we want them now. We come to Jesus in desperation, believing but still wanting our outcome. Jesus, this is what I want. Our prayers are often so much about what Jesus can do and so little about who Jesus is. And don't misunderstand me. You, God wants you to go to him and ask him to do things. That is good. But as I play back the, my prayer reel, right, if I could go back and replay all my prayers from the last month, I wonder how many of them would be about the gift and how many of them would be about the giver. Because we've all heard the expression, oh, you love the gift more than you love the giver. Isn't that something we can all keep an eye on in life? You see, who he is can sustain us regardless of what he does. So the foundation must be built on who he is. And then we receive in faith whatever he chooses to do. 
So Jesus is standing there, and he says, this is who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And Martha responds and says, yes, Lord, I believe. I believe in who you are. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who has come into the world. So we follow Martha's example here, and we say, like, do you believe as well? Do you believe in who Jesus is? I've been thinking a lot this week, and probably you have as well, about the Ukraine. Particularly, though, I've been trying to find what I can about the church in Ukraine. I want to know how pastors are leading in such a time as this. And there's a number of good articles where pastors and Christian leaders in the Ukraine have made statements so we can understand their point of view and beautiful statements about how they're going to stay. They're going to open up their church buildings to be a place, a safe space and a refuge give out humanitarian aid, and these pastors and Christian leaders want the history books to say that when suffering came, when war came, the Christians stayed, and they were the hands and feet of Jesus Christ. You read other things, that um, Christian uh, websites and Bible providers are sharing reports now that in the last few months, They've seen a spike in, Ukraine, in that area of Ukrainian people saying, I want to know about hope. I want to know about peace. I want to download the Bible. I want to find something that I can take refuge in as Russia sets up around the border of my country. As I imagine the Ukrainian church gathering, so they would have gathered hours ago, and they come together and they sing maybe similar songs that we just sang. I wonder if, if they are more concerned with what God can do or who God is. And I understand we don't always have to split those two things. But for the sake of argument this morning, if I'm in the Ukraine and gathered for church this morning, I think I've resigned myself to the fact this is what God is going to do or allow to be done. So I'm going to worship him for who he is, because who he is is more important than, than what he does, and he's allowed them to invade, but I'm going to worship him for who he is, not just for what he does, but for who he is. I hope we can have that same point of view and perspective as well. Continuing with the story, after Martha said this in verse 28, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. And now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. So when the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. I think Jesus is teaching us something in his tears. I think Jesus is teaching us something in his presence. He could have healed Lazarus from 100 miles away. But Jesus is teaching us something here. I think what he's teaching us is that he is with us in our suffering. He's with us. Every one of us have had moments when God didn't show up. Every one of us has had moments where God was late to show up. 
We've all had moments where our life took a turn that we didn't expect. We all have unanswered prayers. We all have this sense of like, God, if you loved me, then you would have. What is it for you? What is it for you in your memory as you think back? That's what it was for me. Then in that moment, in your memory, you need to see Jesus at your side, weeping with you as you weep. Because he is with us. And he weeps with those who weep. Of course, Jesus wanted to spare Mary and Martha and Lazarus this pain. In this moment, Jesus looks around. He sees his friends crying. He sees the people that he created around him broken with grief. And he realizes this this is not the world that I created. Because in the beginning, I, Jesus, I created the heavens and the earth. And this was not part of it. At the end of day one, it was good. And at the end of day two of creation, it was good. At the end of day three, it was good. Day four, it was good. Day five, it was good. Day six, it was very good. That's the world that Jesus created. He didn't put this into the world. And he looks around and he weeps. And he sees what has come of his creation. The apostle Paul tells us in Romans 5, Therefore, just as sin came into the world... Through one man, Adam, and death through sin. And so death has spread to all men because all have sinned. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And Jesus weeps with his friends, with his children. Because he says, this isn't what I wanted either. It's not just Jesus who cries with you either. The Apostle Paul says that the whole creation groans like one giving birth as it longs for the redemption and the restoration of all things. He never wanted you to have to endure the suffering you're enduring. But sin corrupted his good creation. And so he descended from heaven to be with you in the midst of your suffering. Many of you know that when our youngest child was born, right away she had a surgery to fix a problem. A few years later, she had another surgery, and then just a couple years ago, she was actually in the hospital um, just for RSV. Uh, She had trouble breathing, and she was in there for a week um, laboring to breathe. And so when she had her surgery at just a few years old, I'm sure some of you can relate to this, you take your child into a place And then you pay people to cause suffering onto your child, right? And as a parent, this is like a really hard thing to process because you're like, I would like you now to make my child suffer so that they can be healed. It's just hard to process, right? That out of your love, you allow suffering, Thankfully, by the grace of God, in our story, Violet has no memory of that, but Caroline and I certainly do. Another time she was in the hospital, she was angry and in pain and whatever was going on, and she rips her IVs out of her arm. And then they struggle to put the IVs back into her arm. And then more nurses come, and next thing you know, there's five or six people around her, and she's just screaming and fighting, like with every fiber of her being against them. So then I get down in the situation, and there I am, like eye to eye with her. 
like holding her down so that these other people can increase her fear and her anxiety and, and increase her suffering. And all I can say is, I love you, and I'm here with you, and I'm your dad, and I'm right here with you. But we all know I'm, because I love her, I'm allowing her to suffer. And we all know that the most important thing in that moment is for me to tell her who I am. Not what I can do, because I could make them stop. But I'm with her. I'm with her. She knows who I am. And we just have to resign ourselves to the fact that sometimes we suffer because of love. Jesus weeps with us when we weep. He is with us in our suffering. And the story finishes on a wonderful, hopeful note that Jesus saves. And so we'll finish the story for you this morning. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay beside it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there would be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I will said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped in cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. And we're out of time. But Jesus has the power over all things. He has the power over death. And all of us who are in Christ will one day rise in a far more glorious way than even Lazarus arose to new life. But for the sake of time, we're going to wrap this up and with the acknowledgement that Jesus has the power to save. But what we're seeing in Jesus' teachings about suffering is, again, that sometimes we suffer because he loves us. He is more, who he is is more important than what he can do and he is with us in our suffering. And we're ready to go out of here today, back out into a world that's full of suffering. Not, not with our guns loaded to be able to say like, oh, friend, I know why you're suffering. It's because Jesus loves you. That would be uh, unempathetic and foolish, right? No, like we go out of here today with empathy to weep with those who weep. And not to pretend like we know why someone's suffering because we don't. I don't know and you don't know. Only God knows. But here's one thing that I do know and I hope you know. And that is that all of our faith is centered on one man, Jesus Christ. And our faith, you know what the icon of our faith is? It's hanging on the wall behind me and it's become quite familiar to us. But the cross is a symbol of torture. So the centerpiece of our faith is a man who was tortured and brutally died on a cross. Jesus, we believe, has eternally existed in the triune Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we believe, have existed in eternity in a beautiful, uh, un-understandable un uh, relationship of love with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. No one is loved more than the Son is loved by the Father or the, son, or the Father is loved by the Son. Jesus descends down from heaven to earth to be with us, and while he's on earth, God makes it clear he speaks from heaven, Matthew 3.17. He says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So, 
The son that God loves so much and is very pleased with, does he spare him from suffering? No. No, God the Father sent Jesus to suffer because he loves us. Jesus suffered because of God's love. Jesus suffered to demonstrate who he is is more important than what he can do. He could have climbed down off the cross at any moment. But what he can do, that's, that's not what's important at that moment, is it? It's important to see who he is. He is the infinite God paying the price for all the sins of the whole world. He suffered rejection, abuse, violence, injustice, torture, cruelty, shame, anxiety. So that so much suffering was laid upon him that some of his last words were, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sounds very similar to Martha's words, doesn't it? God, where are you? Sounds like this words of suffering that I've shared and I'm sure you have said as well. Jesus himself said it on the midst of intense suffering. So I don't know why there is so much suffering in the world, and I don't know why you or your loved one is suffering. But the suffering isn't necessarily an evidence against the existence of a loving God. Suffering could just possibly be the greatest opportunity we have to most intimately know Jesus. Jesus. 